Hey everybody and welcome to our newest project for first responder wellness, No One Fights Alone, an in-depth conversation about mental health and addiction in the first responder space. We're joined by your hosts Austin Pedersen and Josh Adams. Good morning and welcome to another edition of No One Fights Alone. This is your host Josh and Austin is here, but we took the microphone away from him so that we can have a more effective conversation. Uh, we have special, very special guests with us this morning. We have two of our close friends from uh, from Deer Hollow Recovery in Utah, Jordan Lee and Matt Quackenbush, and we're just going to talk through a few things, uh, their, what services they provide. Uh, the experiences and successes they're having, and any other bits of good advice we're going to have. Just for my part, last week I sat through a, gosh, what was it, about three hours of uh, training that Matt did, and it was, uh, I can't Long. tell you how many times where it's like I felt like he came and put his arm on my, he was he was 300 feet away in, in this presentation hall, but there were several times where it's like, oh, you know, I'm digging around for a pen to make a note in my phone or something like that where it's like that was right i should i you know i should look at things from that viewpoint you know it, it was very much you know <clears throat> there, there was a lot of stuff there that i, I i've taken back and i'm still working on and, and pondering and it's awesome okay how can i how can i do a better job for myself how can i do a better job for my people so i i really appreciate it and, and jordan was kind of the producer of that whole whole event it was well attended here in utah and so anyway, I just want to turn the time over to both of them for a little bit of intro, a little background, a little overview on, on Deer Hollow and their programs, and we'll kind of go from there. Get it, bro. Take it away. I feel like I feel like Josh was just buttering you up a little bit, Matt, and I got a little bit of love, so. Well, he's, 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 <laughs> he was a better speaker than you because you didn't. Yeah. Speak. He's a much better speaker than me okay. when it comes to trauma and PTSD. Yeah. Well, you didn't I mean, even, you didn't speak at all. Matt's so never even heard me yeah. do my thing. Right. No time like the present, dude. Let's I'll, get it. I'll invite you, you some. I'll right. invite you sometime. I do need to go one of the one of the meetings that you do. Yeah. Yeah, I would like that. I would be nervous, but I would like that. Um, last week was awesome, uh, but when it comes to Deer Hall and their services, it's it's weird. Our time flies, right? How. When you're invested and you're involved in doing the work, you don't ever stop to enjoy the moment. And Deer Hollow just had our birthday, our seventh birthday of having services since August of 2015. And for me with Deer Hollow, it goes back to 2014 when we found the house and we gutted it and we built it and we had a vision to create something special. And it has definitely become um, a sacred place for people to heal. And a big part of that is because we found people like Matt um, that continue to study and learn and to grow and to dig in deep when people are suffering and when they're hurting. And I've done just about every job at Deer Hollow from janitorial to director of professional services to create events like we had last week that was really neat. The golf tournament was amazing. The auction was amazing. The training was special. So three different events in two days. I don't think I've recovered. It's been over a week and I still don't feel okay from that. But the people that we were able to affect, the emails that I've seen come through from, from like you said, Matt's training, I've sat into that training probably 24 times now. And every time I hear it, 
he changes it up just enough to where something hits me like a dart in my heart where I'm like, gosh, dang it, I, I, I do need to do that. I can be better. So that's a little bit about me and, and Deer Hollow and the services that we provide. Matt is a specialist when it comes to working directly with the clients. I, I've, I've had the blessing of seeing them on the front end when they come in broken and suicidal and losing their job or their family or just not knowing what to do and not knowing what's going to happen. And then I get to see them after they've been in this gentle care of Matt and our team for 30 to 45 days and they're on fire. They're ready to go home. They want to take on their job. They want to be a better dad. They want to be a better employee. They want to be the person that they used to be. And so for me, it's it's so contrast. For them, it's a gradual change. But I just know that our team, the team that's behind me when it comes to treating these people, does their job or else I wouldn't see that that effect immediately. And then I get to do alumni events quarterly and all these other things. So I get to see long-lasting events from, from the work that Matt gets to do. Yeah, it's, it's, um, so I've been, I've been in Deer Hall since, uh, 2017. I got, um, I've had a lot of opportunities there to, to interact with clients and do groups and individual therapy. And as of late, it's been more of like a, I don't know, kind of on the educational side of things because <laughs> we're out traveling around and doing all sorts of fun stuff. So it's been it's been a different uh, journey over the last couple of years, and Jordan and I have become, you know, we're freaking like super homies now. <laughs> we travel around everywhere. We're always going all over the place, and um, yeah, what what's going on? I think on a larger scale, in the in the community of mental wellness, which is that's a very broad category. There's a lot of stuff going on. A lot of really new information that's out there. A lot of very progressive thinking, a lot of cutting edge stuff that just is so unbelievably effective compared to the stuff that we were doing five, 10, 15 years ago, especially 10, 15 years ago, um, that we just have to be right on the forefront of what is effective. And so I've just kind of become, I don't know, obsessed is a good word, <laughs> fixated on learning what works, what doesn't, trial and error, and being able to educate anyone and everyone who's willing to listen what, what it is that um, is, is cutting edge and what's working right now. And in the first responder world, um, basically the, the field of mental health is in its infancy. And what we're trying to figure out is how this specific population heals the best. Because this population, as you guys are so um, good at reminding me, is different than the other populations, which is a fantastic thing. Uh, and so these methods and, and, and models that have been used for the layperson or the general public... They are effective with first responders, but some methods are much more effective than others. And being able to parse that out and understand what works best, that has to happen. And we need to disseminate that information on a really large scale. And that's kind of what this podcast is doing, right? I mean, that's the whole point. And the more momentum we get behind that movement of dissemination of, of effective information, the more help we're going to get. But 
um, and until people's ears are willing to be opened, really their hearts are willing to be opened to the new cutting edge information that we have, um, things won't change. And so unfortunately, I think one of the hardest parts of working uh, lately in this industry is there is there's some very significant reluctance to being open to these new methods that work really effectively and that's that's been a challenge so that's kind of like where um where we're at now trying to figure out like what what do we do where do we go where do you feel like the biggest where do you feel like the primary sources are for that reluctance there's so one of the things i talk about <laughs> when when we do the the um the presentation thing when we go out and train is like shame culture mm-hmm. and how the way the way shame works is it like basically slows down change and that's a good thing like can you imagine if we hadn't like if in the medical industry we're just like oh let's, this new thing we're just going to roll it out everywhere like that would be ineffective we have to be slow to change but we also have to be willing to see that old ways aren't working and implement new things what impedes that process is shame culture where there's an idea that if I think in a new way or embrace new things that that makes me wrong or, or, or that the old stuff was wrong, but that the old stuff was wrong. Exactly. Yeah. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah. It's not that the old stuff was wrong at all. It worked very, very, very well. It's just, we got to pile on new ways of doing things that's just the way things work and being stuck is really really uh, it just impairs so many people on such a large scale and and the thing that's really and this is a big part of the presentation that I give the thing that really kind of shocked people into being open to change was when people started killing themselves yeah and that's freaking insane like that level of extremity in order for people to listen that that's that says a lot about a culture and i'm not knocking law enforcement first responder culture at all it's a beautiful wonderful space some of my best friends in the world i've ever made i've found through this in this world because it is a world this is very unique special amazing place but what's really 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 challenging is just the amount of stuckness in the way things were and so kind of what we've done at Deer Hollow is be really bold in what we suggest and the way that we do treatment. And that's worked in our favor quite well um, a lot of times. You asked about the reluctance <clears throat> and something came to mind years ago. And it's, it's changed a little bit, but I, I'll never forget. It must have been four or five years ago. I had a chief call me and say, hey, my guy needs help. He's coming down there. He, he's suicidal. He just had a suicide attempt. We've got him. I'm going to bring him down right now. But I don't want anyone to know why he's coming down. <clears throat> I, I, excuse me. I, I can't have anyone know why he's coming down. Can we just, can you talk to him and, and let him know that no one here at the department needs to know why he's coming there? Can we just say that he has an alcohol problem? And, I, and, and at, the, at the time, I'm like, no. I, I won't do that. It's up to him as an individual to, to share with the department. And not only that, I said, I said, chief, you, I would suggest when he comes back, he's going to want to, 
he's going to have some shame, some guilt. People are going to want to know where he is. They're going to ask a lot of questions. And I think honesty and his integrity is going to go a long way if he can come back and share openly that he is suffering from PTSD and why he wanted to take his life. And, and, and it was more socially acceptable for them to say, yeah, he's an alcoholic. He has an alcohol problem, but yet trauma was not okay for him to share with the department. And, and that was pretty common thread you know, four or five years ago for a lot of people sharing that same message. Hey, we don't want him to come back and, and, and tell anybody where he was or why, or what was going on where now they want to advocate. They want some departments really want these guys to come back and share it with everyone, which is happening more and more often, yes. which, which is what should be happening. Yeah. They, they, they need to share that message. Yeah. I mean that very much. I, I've had a couple of uh, <clears throat> friends and associates that have gone through the same thing where it's like, Hey, we just, they went into HR taking leave FMLA and they disappear. And, and number one in, in, in our culture where we are suspicious in nature and we cultivate suspicion and everything mm-hmm. like that, well, somebody's gone for 30 days. Yeah. The hell do you think they were doing? <laughs> you know, you know, a cruise, uh, you know, I mean, what, what medical procedure is a hard 30 day absentee calf yeah. implants, right? Something. <laughs> okay. <implants>. Yeah. <laughs> Boob job. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So, you know, and, and so it's like, you kind of know damn well where they were mm-hmm. and what they were doing, but that secret thing. And, and, and what I found with a, 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 gosh, probably all of them, they all came back and kind of what, what you're alluding to is they're feeling redeemed. They've worked their way through that, those guilts, and and they've overcome shame, and and you know now they, they believe in their own self worth and things all over again. But it's like hide that back under the persona that left thirty days ago, and within a short amount of time, they fall back to their old habits. Yeah. Yep, that's because what shame that, does. because they're not able to live that redemption, if you will. That I you know, that hey, I, I'm I'm. I've risen again, so to speak, and mm-hmm. but I can't tell you. Yeah. This is a secret. Yeah, you know. I, I love that redemption. You used that in your um, in your share that you did um, last week. It was and a couple of people picked up on it, and 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 um, Brandy um, was sitting next to me. She's one of the people who works with us. We said hello, and she says that's awesome. She's like redemption. That's freaking brilliant. And I was like, that is so because uh, that that terminology is perfect because that's the thing we're trying to really obtain is this redeeming quality of humanness where we can be essentially reborn yeah and let go of crap from the past yeah redemption is the opposite of guilt exactly right and 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 this is like i'm a big eastern philosophy guy like i love buddhism taoism Hinduism, all that cool stuff yoga yogi stuff uh, one of the things they talk about all the time is this constant process of death and rebirth, death and rebirth, death and rebirth. That's everything is can be viewed in those terms. And one of the most beautiful things to watch these hardened, gruff, tough, badass dudes sit there and I'm teaching them about, you know, hey, the Buddha 3,000 years ago taught this stuff. And they really like soften and they're like, yeah. I want to be reborn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're kind of yeah. like, I want to be redeemed. I mm-hmm. want redemption. And then they come back and they're like, hey guys, I've been reborn. I've been redeemed. And they're like, oh really? You've been redeemed? 
I don't think so. And then boom, 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 boom. They get hit with all this judgment and shame and stigma and just like, well, you were broken. You can't be fixed. And really what that is, and I'm going to call everybody out who does this, what that is, is you unwilling to look at yourself and your own shit that you're carrying Mm -hmm. around. And that's the hard part. Because if I'm unwilling to look at my own stuff, I can't be open to the idea that I even could possibly be redeemed. Yeah. Everybody needs that. That's that's normal. Everybody's got to mm-hmm. let stuff die and be reborn. Um, quick story. I had a so so out in um, in California. Um, there's like a culture of calling treatment going to Camp Snoopy. I don't know if you guys have heard of this. I think I've told you this. No. They call it Camp Snoopy, and so when somebody goes off treatment, they're like, "Oh yeah, he's off of Camp Snoopy, whatever." And so I sit down um, with, with a guy one day I'm working with, and he says, "Dude, I'm really worried about when I go back." They're going to be like, oh, he was off at Camp Snoopy, all this stuff. And I was like, listen, man, here's what you should do. Day one, go to Amazon, buy a shirt that has a Snoopy on it, and walk in to your department with a Snoopy shirt on. Mm-hmm. And he that. was like, why would I do that? I'm like, because own it, man. Who cares? Mm-hmm. You've been redeemed. You've yeah. been reborn. Like, this is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Why do you need to be apologetic? Why do you need to be ashamed of the fact that you found something beautiful in your life? And he was like, oh, I never thought about it like that. And I don't know if he ever did wear this Snoopy shirt. I would like to think that he did. It was really beautiful and amazing. But who knows? But that's the, that's the idea. And this is kind of the message that this podcast, I would imagine, is trying to do. Like, there's nothing wrong with what you're trying to do. In fact, there's everything right with it. And this is the best part of being human is this growth thing that we do. And shame would have us stay stuck in this stagnant state. And if you think about stagnant whatever, think of what stagnation creates. It creates decay. It creates death. It festers. It creates infection. And that is what has happened in any culture that remains stagnant and unwilling to grow. Yeah, I think shame is is that is exactly where that comes from. Mm-hmm. You know, in my <clears throat> learning and, and discovery and research and stuff like that, it, you know... It, Different, different people talk about, you know, that, that that emotion, shame, is actually one that humans do not naturally feel. It's taught. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we, we can feel guilt when we harm one another or have a bad impact on another person. And that is a real thing. But that 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 shame piece of, um, you know, I'm ashamed of myself or I'm ashamed of this or whatever, I mean, so much of that is taught to us in our mm-hmm. lives is, okay, well, this is because it was sinful or it was immoral or, or whatever the thing is. And so being able to take that and saying, okay, that's what that is. Yeah. It's, it's that, it's that cesspool of, of idleness of pr- progress, whatever. Cause I haven't dealt with the things I feel guilty about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's this self judgment, this, yeah. this evaluation of me as a person mm-hmm. that something I've done or failed to do makes me bad. Yeah, unworthy of the definition that I like the best is Brene Brown's definition. Something I've done or failed to do makes me flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. So my flawedness is the thing that makes me unworthy. The antidote to that is saying, oh, we're all flawed. That's normal. It's freaking humanness. And that doesn't make me unworthy. Actually, my flawedness is what makes me a part of something. Humanness. And that's cool. And so when we hide that we need help and we hide 
uh, when we're unwilling to ask for help, it perpetuates this shame insidiousness and it, mm-hmm. and it permeates the culture and it creates divisiveness, it creates isolation, and with enough festering and enough infection in that culture, eventually the isolation ends up looking like people feeling unloved, unwelcome, burdensome, hopeless, and that's where the suicidal stuff comes from. Yeah. Zero self-worth anymore. Yes. And, yeah. and even, I'm not even valuable as a professional anymore, uh-uh. let alone a human. Uh-uh. I can't I can't be me. Mm-hmm. I got to fake it. I got to pretend to be somebody else. I just went and got in treatment. I better hide it. Right? I'm yeah. never wearing my Camp Snoopy shirt. I'm going to lie to people and say, mm-hmm. oh, where, where were you? Uh, 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 you know, like Jordan's story. Uh, I, you know, I got an alcohol problem. I just went, <clears throat> you know, as if, as if, as if that, that's the thing that <laughs> drives me crazy. As if that's like better. It's so strange that that is acceptable. Being an out, al- like having alcoholism is more desirable than asking for help for trauma treatment. Like help, uh, help me understand why. I don't know. It's well, more normal. Well, here's the thing. It's just more acceptable. <laughs> at least they were getting him help. Right? I, yeah. I mean, at yeah. least they were yeah. making the call to get this guy yeah. help now that I think about it. Cause True, of course. What I would like to do is to go to Home Depot and get a bunch of five-gallon buckets and put uh, EAP or HR department and fill it full of dirt and take it to the admin offices and then say, this is this is your new EAP services. Just rub some dirt on it. So anytime yeah. anyone comes in with a problem, just hand them a handful that's of a dirt. <laughs> because that's the way that it's been forever. It's yeah. Just, hey, could you rub some dirt on it? Could you work it out? Hey, you know what? Take a day off. Maybe. Not mm-hmm. anymore, right? Not Nobody's taking days off anymore. Now it's like, hey, can you work a double? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, a but the way it used to be is like, you know what? Take a day off. Get right. You mm-hmm. know, get right. And, and so at least we're working in the right direction to get people help. There's a lot of people out there willing to help. Mm. which is really, really cool. And there's a lot of really bad people willing to help too, which is what we found out. There's a lot of services that don't offer an effective change is what I found out in the last, you know, seven or eight years. And and I think everyone in this room here knows that too, is that there's places that say that are willing to help, but really don't have the skills to affect that type of change because PTSD is extremely complex. You You can't just have a regular therapist that's been working with kids or that just graduated that's really going to affect and and challenge a type A personality like a first responder to get that change. And, and you can say, hey, we do EMDR, we do ART, we do CBT, we do all these things, we do all these modalities. But if you don't know how to effectively use those modalities together to a type A personality, they'll never grasp any of them. So yeah, I did EMDR, it didn't work. And, and not all the time. There, there's no one modality for one person. No. That's the no. thing. It's like, well, I did EMDR. It didn't work for me. Good. Do something else. There's there's a there's a ton of stuff yeah. that, that we do at Deer Hollow that Matt's effective to do. And it says, you don't like that? Let's do this. You know, there's there's a ton of options that we can we can we can guide these people through that they'll grasp to them. Hopefully they become an expert after 30 days of treatment and six effective modalities. They'll gravitate to usually one or two. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that they effectively, it's just like working out, right? You can say, hey, I was in really in good shape 2008, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I haven't eaten good for, you know, for over a decade and I just don't feel good. It's the same thing with your mental health is that it's something that regularly has to be attended to. And if you don't have the skills to, to practice those mod- modalities and carry it with your life, you'll go right back to where you were. Yeah, and it is. And I, I find that all the time with guys I, I, I uh, meet with is is the modality that that's key is not you know they come and it's like this is what we're gonna do 
mm-hmm. you know, and, and that, and, and that flies in the face of the way we've all been raised, <clears throat> excuse me, medically, if you will, where it's like, Hey, I go to a pediatrician when I'm a kid and he's the one that's going to fix me. Yeah. And it's whatever he says in a, in 10 minutes is the outcome or, you know, if my knee's screwed up, I'm going to the orthopedic dude and he's going to talk about surgeries and stuff. But what, what you offer, what Chateau, the thing that I, I, I find so much value and hope and momentum behind is it's like, yeah, Hey, we're going to give you a, this is a toolkit and use the right tools. Yeah. We're going to show you how to use these tools. You find the tools that work for you and use those tools. You know, don't waste your time with something that doesn't work. Focus on what what clicks with you type of a thing. And and that you guys are able to offer, you know, to a, a new patient, you know, here's 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 the a la carte menu if you will or a, or a buffet. Take what what you feed you. Leave the rest of the stuff you know, mm-hmm. I tried the pudding. I don't like it. Okay. Yeah. Then don't eat pudding, you know? And, and I think that's what really catches on when people, what I notice when people are on the back end of their treatment cycle that, that they have, if they came in and they, you know, and, 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 and they find the things that are working, you know, God, they're excited about it. And they're excited to take them home. And they're like, you know, I'm excited to order me some i'm gonna go order me a trough i'm gonna start doing ice baths and shit like that and it's just like you know, <laughs> you yeah, know yeah you know because <laughs> like, you know where where 30 days ago you're like you want me to hop into a pond into a freezing water yeah. freezing water <laughs> no no you know but what i look like, like all yeah. of a sudden it's like yeah the the, the wim hof and they're like oh shit i actually yeah that freaking works it makes me forget some of my other shit because i know and it lasts halfway frozen yeah that's the best part of the wim hof stuff man you do it in the morning and you're like wow that day was really good i didn't do my thing yesterday and what for whatever yeah. reason that day sucked huh yeah and you really start to pay attention to it and i i've told guys about breathing and cold showers and freaking meditation and all these things that are just like there's no way that works whatever i need some medication and yeah. they're like that's more that's better than the meds i got mm-hmm. off my meds doing that stuff I'm like, yeah. yeah exactly yeah yeah but to mm-hmm. get motivated to do that yes that's so, that's key. the hard part so correct the the one pitfall that i've seen over all these years and over like 15 years in mental health departments and and and, and around the willingness to change yeah. right and the discipline is the hard thing because to get you in an ice bath you have to be hurting pretty bad mm-hmm. right to get somebody to wake up in the morning and to do to practice a modality or to do yoga and i'll speak for myself i have to be in a lot of pain pain motivates when somebody comes in, they, they become an expert. They learn a language, but if you don't practice the language, you forget it. Yep. And and it's fear and pain, right, that motivate us sometimes to take action. But the thing where I've seen most people fail is the continued willingness and a disciplined approach. And one of the best things for people to continue on that disciplined approach is to carry the message to others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when somebody's on fire and they grasp this and they want to get up in front of the whole department and share it, or they want to go tell their whole family, this is what happened to me. This is what it took. Losing my, my, my family, my job, my life. That's the kind of, that's, those are the scenarios that it takes for most people to make these types of changes in their lives. But then to continue on that path of change, they need to share it with other people because they want to save lives. That's literally what they're doing. So rather than come back and, and just go on and say, oh, I'm better. That was, a, that, was, that was really cool. That was good for me. When they start sharing it with everyone around them, it keeps the fire. And, and, and they continue to, 
it, it's hard to be a hypocrite, right? If you say you should, you should take ice baths, you should see this therapist. I see a therapist still once a month or every other week or whatever it is. Then you're not a hypocrite. I, I had these issues and I was lost without it. Now here is my disciplined approach to staying well. And you should do the same thing. And that's how that's the most success I've seen over years of, of people recovering from PTSD. Well, I, I agree. And one of the like a, a an analogy I've thought of before <clears throat> where, you know, trying to contrast this type of uh, thought with the way we were all raised in modern medicine, if you will, is it's like, OK, a, a person gets prostate cancer, gets diagnosed how many people are out going, hey, everybody, I got prostate cancer. You know, most people are taking care of it quietly, mm -hmm. okay? But once they get past it, you know, it, it's not like they're going around like, I had prostate cancer, I survived it, let me check your prostate, <laughs> you know? Or, but, and, and that's not where, what we're necessarily asking anybody to do or the expectation, but it is, it's like, hey, I had prostate cancer, you should get your prostate checked, you know? You should do the maintenance things versus, oh, yeah, my, my, if anybody asks me, I'll tell them, yeah, I had prostate cancer. You know, that, that's not advocacy. And now we're, now part of what we are doing is we're, you know, the people that come to us and get that help are, I feel like they're feeling like they can go back and say, yeah, I got that help versus I got to hide it or it's embarrassing that I had prostate cancer, which means that they stuck a camera in my ass and whatever else, you know. Yeah. Did all that happen? Do you, you Did you have prostate cancer? No. Okay. I might have it now. I don't know. You know, I mean. Insurance would I'll, cover a checkup. Just yeah, so you know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, But you're absolutely right. Like yeah. people don't want to share. They want to yeah. keep it. And, and with... Matt touched on it earlier is that we we've been really good at treating those that seek out help yeah. right and then following up and doing the best the nice thing about the trainings that we've been able to do the last two years is that we're so reactive the first responder community is so reactive when when everything's about to explode we jump in and save the day mm -hmm. that's what you guys are you're heroes you save the day you're gonna fix it and we've been proactive with education that's mm -hmm. been the big thing is that when we put out I put out a flyer a couple of years ago and I just said, hey, I wonder if somebody would want to hear this training for free. Is there a department? Is there an agency? I'll create a flyer. I'll throw it on a website. And we booked out for 18 months straight every other week. Now, when you do a, a free training and when you're training people about PTSD or, and, and trauma and mental health and, and all these things, they don't want to hear it, right? Half of them, all of them should be there. There's nobody that's listening to this call or in this room that can improve themselves as an individual and work towards their mental health becoming better. But the people that have their arms folded, that all, most all of you sit in the back of the room anyway, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix that in our next training. I'm going to flip the room after we start the training. I'm going to say, everyone stand up and pick up your chairs and turn around. The training's happening from this mm -hmm. side of the room because those in the back Best of the room with their ever. arms folded, I believe are the ones hurting the most. Oh, yeah. I'm here because I have to be, not because I'm really interested in this message. And those that have to be are those the ones that are hiding and protecting themselves. They have 100%. the biggest armor, the biggest walls built mm -hmm. up around them. And and it's easy to see after you've seen it for so long. Mm -hmm. It's easy for, for, for Jared and for Matt and me and for, for, for Josh to, to look and say, that guy's hurting, you know? Uh, and, and, and that's the way that it's been. It's been so nice to say, hey, you know what? This is an in-service training. Everyone's required to go and everyone needs it. 
And then to see the body language in that four or eight hour period to just think, gosh, this is needed so bad. And the guys that get up and walk out as fast as possible, eventually the good news is they'll know what it takes or where to get help and that there's a community out there that wants to help them get better. The tough thing is, is that what's going to have to happen before you, you reach that willingness to change. Yeah. And the thing that you hit earlier, Jordan, that was right on the money is, is the motivation piece. And if it, a lot of times for humans, if it's just about me, I'm okay with some suffering. Like I can handle this, right? I can grin and bear it. I can gut through this, right? I'm pretty strong, whatever. As long as I can hide this and it doesn't affect other people, I'm okay. And then it starts to affect other people. Then your wife comes and your kids start noticing stuff. And then within us is this very powerful intrinsic motivator that I think is is evolutionarily designed to keep the species going, to keep family units, to keep teams, to keep organizations propelling forward. There's there's this energy within the human being that you can tap into when you start doing stuff for us rather than just me. I call it we over me. Yeah. And it's powerful. And that's the thing that really if people can grasp that, all of a sudden, my motivation to do something difficult, it's just, it's there. I don't have to go searching for it, right? I have this beautiful, amazing family, right? I got four kids. I got a wife. I don't do anything for them. Freaking zombie apocalypse, I'm out there, freaking bandana on, assault rifle, <laughs> like I'll freaking save, I'll do anything for them, right? Of course. So... When we change the narrative from, hey, don't let anybody know that you're hurting to, hey, be honest with your hurt, now people know and they start saying stuff like, hey, I want you to get help because I don't want you to hurt. That feels amazing. And then all of a sudden, I have this team of people buoying me up, supporting me, saying, yes, go get help. Go change because we need you. You sick and hurting That sucks. That's a drain on our family, on our organization, on our system. We need you to be at your best so that you can do the thing that we need you to do to help us move forward. And this is that if if we could somehow inject that concept into the culture of first responders, I genuinely think we would see massive change. Absolutely. Massive change. And um, one of the things that I'm, so I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm reluctant or not. I'm like maybe a little reluctant. I'm back in school studying. And so I, I'm spending like five to 10 hours a week, every week combing through academic literature. And my, I found this cool program where they have a track that's just trauma. It's pretty awesome. And they're um, trying to, basically I'm, I'm studying complex post-traumatic stress disorder in relation to first responders and finding all the literature on this that I can find. And there's tons of stuff out there. And I found a couple of different articles that are really fascinating. And one of them that's the most fascinating that I think is that I'm going to try and figure out how to put in the presentation. We're, we're presenting at the Utah Fall Conference here in next month, Utah Addiction Conference. And this will be in that presentation. Two weeks. Two weeks, yeah. Uh, out at the Zermont. It's going to be a fun one. It's going to be nice. Yeah. Um, it's the concept of post-traumatic growth. And this isn't a term that people really know or have heard, but it needs to be. 
very, very, very valuable. The concept is this. It's basically the worst moment of my life, my traumatic moment, is actually the reason why I'm awesome. That's the simplest way to put it. My traumas have given me my growth, and so I don't just try and deal with them. I own them, I embrace them, and I realize that the reason this thing happened, the why that this thing happened, was because I became who I am because of it. And now as I deal with the aftermath of that, I've become stronger and more capable of helping the family, the community, the organization, myself, us. It's very, very, very powerful concept. And it needs it needs to be shouted from the rooftops to everybody. And this, There'll be books coming out about it. There's a lot of research going on. Um, I, re I really think this is kind of the future of trauma work stuff is this post-traumatic growth idea great book out there called what happened to you um it's actually by um a doctor whose name i can't remember in oprah it's this conversations on trauma book great he talks a lot about it so it's really starting to enter the pop culture kind of like space as well but the 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 idea that the crappy things that happen to me make me great is very cool because usually, how do we think of the crappy things that happen to you? Hide them. Don't talk about them. Don't let anybody know. Shame, 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 yeah. shame. I think part of it too, part of that shift that, that I'm, I'm recognizing is we're moving away from, uh, you know, a diagnosis. Yeah. You have the pathology. XYZ disorder versus this is your phenomenological mm -hmm. difference. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a disease. It's you changed because of that event. Correct. And it's okay that you changed because of that event. That. And, you know, one of the ways I, I look at it too is, you know, you look at a guy that's been in this line of work for, for years and there's, there's a number of, um, places throughout that jurisdiction, maybe as a police officer, this is how I've, I journaled this one time. There are these little grave sites throughout that community where little pieces of me died, mm. you know, here was in a, here, I, I remember, I remember this baby I remember this mom handing me her dead baby in the living room and falling to my knees and doing CPR on it because I didn't know what else to do. And I remember, and then, okay, here's a, here's a particularly grisly murder scene and, or neglected kids and stuff like that. And it's like, well, yeah, little pieces of your, well, you're, you're, you're that person I was when I was 23, those are little pieces of him died. Okay. And it's okay to mourn those pieces, but it's also okay to believe that they can be redeemed or resurrected and grow back. Love it. Those things don't die. It's not that they die and we have to bury them and they're no longer mm -hmm. part of our human mm -hmm. nature and they can grow back. And one of the things that helps it to grow back, I found is it's okay to physically, emotionally, mentally, whatever, return to those grave sites the same way we do with our own loved ones and stuff. And it's like, you know, you'll go put a flower on your on on your grandpa's, you know, headstone on Father's Day or whatever the case is. You know, it, it's kind of doing that same action of I'm re I'm reflecting on you in a positive, positively mournful yeah. way. And, and remembering the good times and whatever and, and, and letting that kind of regrowth and regeneration occur where, yeah, instead of that being something that I have to, I, I've, I've 
have found negative coping mechanisms. It's no, it's, 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 I've grown from it. I've grown mm. differently. You know, I'm different now, but it's still growth. It's not replacement. It's growth. Yeah. Yeah. When people you've lost, you memorialize them. Exactly. You go back and you remember what it is that you learned from those people. Exactly. I mean, not everybody was a nice person. Like I have my grandparents. I lost almost all my grandparents in the last like year and a half. It's been brutal. And my grandfather on my dad's side, he was an awesome dude. I freaking look up to that guy more than anybody. He was also a big dick half the time. He was me. He was like mean, even towards the end of his life. Doesn't mean I don't love the guy. But when you're memorializing someone, you don't throw away the negative aspects. You highlight the positives, mm-hmm. the growth aspect exactly. of yeah. what happened. That's the same thing. Mm-hmm. When, when death comes along, we don't need to hide the fact that it freaking hurts. Yeah. Actually, maybe the fact that it hurts is the thing that's motivating. That's what Jordan was talking about. Yeah. Pain is motivating. It's very, very motivating. Especially when I see that the value of that pain is that it's the thing that's making me stronger. Because without pain, we would never get stronger. We have to feel this thing in order to get better. So ignoring that only leaves me weak, which is the very thing that we don't want to be in the mm-hmm. first place, right? And the, the unity that it creates by finding oh. strength in those incidents, when you just shared your little, your little thing, it kind of messed me up. Josh, about the baby in the living room. I've got little babies right now, and I just thought, gosh, that's hard. Oof. But but you sharing that with a young officer, or sharing that openly, if we if we own those things that happened to us or that we were a part of, and we 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 own that they made us who we are, then when it happens to somebody else, that gives us unity and fellowship and service. Where somebody says, "I don't know what to do," and, and you can say, "I've been there. I felt the way that you felt." And it's going to be okay. But if you never share that, if you never own that experience, if you never own, and that's the thing that's like, well, why do bad things happen to good people? You know, that, that, that stuff that everyone always says, well, it's to give us strength and to join together and to be more of a we community rather than I and be lonely and isolated and scared. But you just sharing the stuff that all of the experiences that you've been through, I guarantee that you sharing those and being vulnerable to share those has given a lot of strength and hope for other people to carry on. And that's what we hope all of our people do. Everyone that learns and grows, we we don't just want, we need them to share those experiences. What isolated them? What 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 broke you, right? What what broke you and how did you recover from that experience so that other people feel like they can be redeemed, that they can have that that new life, that they can feel normal again, that they can have a family and kids and and be a good dad and be a good employee. So there's a lot of strength from sharing. The The vulnerability that, that, that it takes is huge. Well, and I don't know how many of your listeners know the 12 steps, but I like to use this all the time because we work a lot in the recovery community. The, in my opinion, the culmination, like the icing on the cake of the 12 steps is the 12th step. And without it, the other 11 don't work. Don't add up. And the 12th step, Q Jordan. I, I, when you said the, when you said the whatever the growth, I was like, yeah, that's the that's exactly the twelve steps. Yeah. That's what saved my life, you know, mm-hmm. fifteen years ago. That's why I am and who and what I am today. I, and as as you teach something, you learn it more than if you learn something. So what is the twelfth step? The twelfth step is yeah. uh, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. We tried to carry this message to others and practice these principles in all of our affairs. Boom! So and, beautiful. And, and that's exactly yeah. what it is because. 
yeah, I fumbled through 11 steps, right? And then I've solidified them as I practice the 12 by carrying the message to countless people that whether they got it or not, I did. In my attempt to help others, I was healed. And that's exactly what it is. You, I, I can't take responsibility to save other people, but in my attempt to do so, I feel good about the redemption in my life that, that needs to happen, about being a good dad, about sharing those experiences. So yeah, it's 12 steps. And in Western culture, who is the figure that we idolize more than any other? Christ. What did he do? What's his whole message? Everything that that man, God, human, did was this. Carry the message. Give of yourself and you will become better. And he was the best of us. And that's all he did. And I think that that has some value. It really does. 100%. Love one another. Sacrifice. Love. Give. It's not about you. Right? And this is what I say. Like, I work at Steps once a week. And Steps is, you know, it's it's not first responders. It's ex-military. Sometimes you get first responders in there. But this is like guys, you know. and It's I, I a tough at, crowd. Yeah, it is. They're brutal. This is like mm-hmm. six, <laughs> seven, tough. eight, nine, <laughs> ten. You know. Treatments. Freaking severe heroin. Meth. Like, these guys are like on the verge of death. I see them two, three, four times in a year sometimes. You know, like, we're, we're seeing these people all the time. And the thing that I do is I freaking yell at them. I get in their faces, and they love it. I'm just like, get over yourselves, right? And I kind of, I kind of get a little gruff with them, like, get over yourselves, motherfuckers. I'm like, wake up, like this is not about you. Stop whining. It's not about your petty problem. Yeah, I get it. Sure, you got dealt a rough hand. So what? What are you gonna do about it? Go freaking help somebody. Somebody read me the twelfth step, and they stand up. Now you read it. Now you read it. Now you read it. Now you read it. Okay, what are you gonna do? Oh, no, no, what are you going to do? And I make everybody sit and wait, and I stare at this guy right in the freaking face, and I say, what are you going to do when you leave? And you should see the whole room just get silent. And they're like, what are we gonna, what's he going to do? <laughs> and he has to go inside of his heart, inside of himself, and ask himself that question. What am I going to do to go help? How am I going to change being a selfish prick and start being somebody who gives a shit about people? Because that's my problem. And they get it. And some of them get it and it clicks and you never see them again. And it's beautiful. But until you get that, you keep coming back. And that's the one lesson we're all trying to learn. It's not about me. It's about us. Yeah. It, it regenerates the, the warrior inside of yeah. those guys. And that's the... And that and yeah, he's like, I, whatever, you know, as a veteran and stuff, service and things that might brought him to that point in his life... And where he is a, he's a victim and, and I hate everybody and I got a raw deal and fuck the VA and, and, and all yeah. that stuff you hear over <laughs> and over and over again. But yeah, if you can tap into, um, that, that warrior spirit that they had and is still there, they just, it's been coated in yeah. rust. Yeah, those are the ones that come and and yeah, they start calling each other out on their shit in groups. Oh, I love it. And yeah, love and challenging each so other to fun. be better and and you need to own your shit and everything. And it's like and then you is like when when I'm doing a group down there, it's just I'm just sitting there like 
get them. Just don't, just don't punch each other. And we're fine. <laughs> you guys both do groups there? Why yeah, not? I love it. Yeah. That's my Sunday afternoons, man. What am I going to get to do a group down there? Talk to time, man. He put sure. you in. Somebody, you know they could use some Jordan Lee down there. Somebody put a good word for me. Yeah. No, it's it's actually, uh, you know, and for me working with those folks, um, just from my professional background, it's been amazing to talk about the intersections in their lives with uh law enforcement because it's basically people from the same cut from the same mold in yeah, a lot of ways big time but the differences are just are very slight and yeah. it's like they go off and fight you know and come back and they have their issues and these guys have kind of stayed and fought and have their issues mm-hmm. and you know and a lot of times i mean a number of those people i mean they've had significant jail stays and you know a lot of those guys have have a, a tracker on their ankle and and all this kind of stuff and it's like they're sitting there talking to the chief of police and it's like i want to hear their story from their side you know and know that hey their perspective is true from their perspective yeah. and then try and help them understand okay well like classic ones are yeah this cop just totally you know i walked up to him and and uh, started asking him what he was doing and all this kind of stuff. And then he kind of jumped my shit. Next thing you know, I'm getting tased or da 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 And it's like, well, <laughs> you know, and, and son of a bitch. I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> son of a bitch. But, yeah. you know, but at the same time, it's like, you know, did that officer know you were a veteran? Did he know about all these other things that have happened to you? No. Okay. If Had he known those things, could he have potentially done something different yeah okay what do you know about that officer nothing how do you know he's not a vet well i don't how do you know he hasn't been shot how do you know he hasn't how do you know what he did how how, what do you know what kind of shit show he was in an hour ago Mm -hmm. i don't okay so we've got two people that are of this warrior mentality and it's basically like you backed into each other and startled each other now you're turned and facing each other like you know and he had a taser and you didn't so that's what (laughs) happened he's like well yeah i guess that's true you know and it's helped them to kind of reason through not that they agree with necessarily how the criminal justice system treated them. And frankly, sometimes I don't agree with the way they were treated either, but I think they understand, okay, well, here was the perspective of those frontline people the same way I was a frontline person in, in a war. Yeah. So, well, what, what I do with, with, um, one thing that I found that works really well, and we're going to take it a little gnarly here for a second, brace yourself folks is um, I get people to talk about their sexual abuse. And one of the things that, that a lot of people don't know, and research is coming out about this too in the law enforcement community and first responders and, and stuff like that. Like a lot of times the motivator, the motivator to why I do what I do is my abuse. Mm-hmm. And sexual abuse is one of, it's actually not one of, it is the most detrimental abusive event that a human being could experience. We know this has been very closely researched. There's copious amounts of research that if you are sexually abused, the likelihood of you developing addiction or some sort of adverse response is extremely high to the point where somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to nine in 10 women in recovery treatment at any given time, if they're in residential, have been sexually abused. And about half plus of men in a recovery treatment center have been sexually abused. And I say that in this room full of dudes and then I say, okay, split it down the line. I bet half of you have been sexually abused and or had experience with sexual abuse. And um, I don't make anybody raise their hands, but I go, I have. And they're like, 
me too, me too, me too, me too. And then I say, how many of you talked about this with your therapist? Zero. Yeah. And then they start talking about it and they freaking heal. Because the thing is, going back to the post-traumatic growth thing, the darkest moment of my life made me me. My responses to that have been a microcosm of that entire event. Yeah. And so this moment made me me. How I responded to that was a choice that I made as a young child, and I've never made another decision in my life. I made that decision. I've just made the same decision over and over and over and over and over. What if there were a new way to respond to that moment? What would you tell that little kid? Is he terrible? Is he awful? Is he bad? Is there something wrong with him? Is it his fault? No, I would never say that. I would never say that. What would you tell him? That he's loved. Tears. <laughs> that he needs help. That he's alone and it's okay. And that it gets better. Tears. More tears. And then the whole room just bawling their faces off. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And this is, this is the kind of stuff that we just, as a society, like the amount of resistance to healing it boggles me because i these deep deep festering wounds exist inside of our minds and our psyches and they they motivate our every single decision all day long every day and we just pretend like they didn't happen that is so scary and so we end up really really stuck in these patterns of behaviors that are so hurtful to others, to myself, and it's needless because we know how to heal this stuff. And we mask it with staying busy, working, drinking, um, tons of different avoidant behaviors, right? There's so many different, the list goes on and on and on. But really the big three are sexual abuse, neglect, physical abuse, and then poverty. So you got your abuse, neglect, and poverty. Those four things, especially when there's like compounded on top of each other, the likelihood of developing severe um, complex post-traumatic stress disorder or severe uh, drug addiction or whatever, ending up in the criminal juvenile in the criminal system, it, it's very, very, very high. And this is the stuff that within the last, really, I'm not joking, two to three years we've actually figured out. And now this is being researched and it's in academic literature, hasn't been disseminated into, the, into you know, our culture yet. And that's the kind of stuff that's going to start coming out here soon. We're starting to see like, oh, we really know now for certain that the reason why these people are doing what they're doing is because of what happened to them when they were kids. Yeah. Question for you though, Matt. Yes. So neglect or abandonment issue, right? So at Deer Hollow, we're doing nearly 40 hours a week of dedicated trauma programming. Okay, we have 12 people that come in. Everyone comes in because they have trauma or PTSD, and they're saying it's because of these horrible incidents as an officer right. or as a firefighter or as a military guy. How many hours a week of that 40 is dedicated to childhood trauma, to those things that you just mentioned? 40. <laughs> that, that's, that, that's what's been baffling to me yeah. to learn is that everyone comes in, they say, oh, I lost my friend, I did this, I had, and, and they're horrific right? Pulled babies out of burning cars, their arms fell off. I mean, the stuff that I've heard in groups is bring me to tears every single time. But when they're in group and they're doing that deep trauma work, it's always childhood. It's the reason they got into the profession. 
at one point when that neglect, that that's physical sexual abuse or that abandonment issue happened to them, mm-hmm. they felt powerless and helpless. Yep. And they knew when they got older, they would not allow that to happen to them or anyone else ever again if they had the opportunity. Whether that's a nurse or it could be a doctor, that is their why. That's why they got into the profession, not to shoot guns and do cool stuff. Do you know what I mean? It is to protect and serve. It's to help somebody else to not feel the way that they felt with their touchstone event, their traumatic event that has, whether they knew it or not, guided their whole why their entire life. And the interesting the interesting thing is that then in helping other people, every time that incident happened, it activated neurologically that same event in their childhood, mm-hmm. which eventually gets them to the place where they're suffering and that they need help. It's crazy. Right. Boom, trauma therapist. Boom. Look at that, man. <laughs> that was impressive. Crazy. That was it's so well done. What happened to you? Yeah. Uh, burning child in a car. What happened to you before that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What happened to you before that? What happened to you before that? Mm-hmm. And and yeah, basically taking one block it's at a time off that wall and and to find out where the, the footing or the foundation, whatever you want to call it, of, of all that rest of that shit yep. is the way, you know, and it, it's fascinating to, it to see that in people. And, and, and my, my first therapist, she kind of did that to me too. I would, the first time, and she wasn't, she wasn't really uh, into the post trauma recovery or anything like that and growth. But I remember one time talking to her about a thing and she's like, hang on, yep. talk, tell me more about this. And I'm like, I'm trying to tell you about the thing. And she's like, <laughs> no, 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 tell no. me about this. And yeah. it's like, and so it's like this little duel yeah. for a minute where it's like, I'm like, I don't know where, where you're not paying attention to me here. <laughs> you know, you got a little hostile for a minute because it's like, you're not even listening to me yeah. and I'm paying you how much right now? Yeah. You get all and, defensive uh, yeah. because because the ego goes, yeah. oh, exactly. oh no, she saw it. I can't yeah. let her, I can't let her in. Yeah. And, I, and, and, and it's kind of spooky because I'm like, I don't even know what the hell you're talking about. Yeah. I'm fine. You know, I'm yeah. the, the, that part. And, and, but yeah, then she, I'm fine. She keeps poking and then, fine. yeah, next thing you know, I'm in tears and I'm like, what, what the hell? What the hell? Where what did you that come from? Yeah. yeah. Well, I was and, fine before I got here. Yeah. No. Well, and from from the cool thing too is when you start to learn like how the brain works and how it like physic physically grows. The way the brain grows, we know this now. The brain grows around narratives and ideas, and it literally physically structures itself around these narratives and ideas. And the narratives and ideas that I develop about myself, the world, and others were developed. In my early childhood, especially during the period of time when I began to learn how to talk. That time period is so unbelievably crucial, but we don't really remember it. So the really the key events that we end up working with a lot of time in trauma work, it's this wild phenomenon. It's where I can actually begin to formulate memories that have language associated mm-hmm. with them. So it's ages six to nine. You, I would say that 80% of the work I do with people is about ages six to nine. And if you have a... A, a, a an abuse, a neglect moment, whatever, between six and nine, that's the one that you remember the most. And that's when your brain began to formulate and create literal, physical, neurological structures around these narratives. And your brain has operated and functioned according to those neurological structures since you were six, seven, eight, nine. And even earlier sometimes, even earlier, especially, and the hardest thing to work with is when there's severe neglect or abandonment and especially sexual abuse, that's pre-verbal, before you can talk. It's one of the most difficult things to work with. And so what we end up doing with people, and one of the most effective things you can do with people, 
because um, talk therapy works a lot for the stuff after six, but the stuff before six, it's got to be all body stuff. And so that's why yoga is so effective because you don't even know what happened to you before six. Of course you don't. And so we get people in yoga. That's why the breath work is so good. That's why the cold exposure is so helpful because it's resetting your basically your central nervous system um, to a new way of functioning, creating new structure in the brain so that it literally physically fires differently than it has your entire life. Can you tell that this is my obsession and I'm very passionate it's about cool it? It's cool shit. It blows my mind. And I remember when I started to learn it, I was like, no shit. And it just, I was like, okay. And then I got really obsessed with figuring my stuff out. And I dug deep and I went to therapy and I talked to my friends and I, uh, me and Amy would sit every lunch and we would talk about stuff for years. And me and Lisa, we did traded therapy sessions with these other, these are, these are the therapists up at Deer Hollow. And then uh, Stacy and I did some stuff together and then I went and then I got my own therapist again. And then I went and got um, a couple's therapist to talk to my wife. And now my wife is going to individual therapy and like this has been my, it's been awesome. And I'm, I've never been more stable, happy safe and capable of dealing with my own stuff and my my whole life i've been a mess my my earliest trauma narrative was i'm a bad kid and that began when i was three two and three years old my sister was born i became this bad kid and i've been trying to undo that narrative my entire life and really until about mid-30s was when i began to actually let it go and that's not not abnormal that's actually pretty normal that's when most people start to kind of go like Oh, I think I probably want to do some changes. It's mid thirties. It's the midlife. It's kind of cool. Anyway, we can go into that another time if you guys want. But wild stuff. Gotta love it, man. Trauma. How are we doing for time there, time captain? We're at an hour. We're at an hour. Beautiful. Well, then let's be done. All right. So in summary, we just want to thank uh, thank Deer Hollow again. Um, the services they're providing and we appreciate everybody that's listening and please uh, please take what you can from each one of these podcasts Um, know that there are people um, actively thinking working and and trying to find things to help you and I as we move forward and again part of us all being in this community is that we do not fight alone and we wish y'all the very best um, if you want to reach Deer Hollow, if you have any questions and you want to reach out to Deer Hollow, you can go to DeerHollowRecovery.com or you can call, um, 888-885-WE-KNOW and that'll go to somebody and whether we're the right facility or not, we won't stop until you're in a safe place. My website is Finding-Strength.com. Get all sorts of cool information there. First responders, links to my presentations, bunch of podcast stuff. The name of the podcast is the Finding Strength Podcast. Pretty cool concept. Uh, just recorded our fiftieth episode, um, and the idea is we get new people on, and they tell their stories of strength, finding strength. It's pretty cool. Check it out. There's a lot of first responder um, episodes on there. Thanks for having us on. This is awesome. really great. Thank you guys. We Good really times. appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this segment of No One Fights Alone. No One Fights Alone is sponsored by 
Chateau Recovery is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information, or to speak to a representative, go to chateaurecovery.com or call 888-507-5031. No One Fights Alone is also sponsored by First Responder Trauma Counselors. First Responder Trauma Counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. This 40-hour all-badges, all-uniforms, and all-scrubs educational experience helps to create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. The FRTC National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent, licensed behavioral health clinicians that teach from lived experiences, not just theories from books. This fast-paced, immersive educational academy will not just change your life, it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details, visit 991overwatch.org or call 970-222-419-3. This could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.